Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Monday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. I am so excited to be back with you guys. I apologize. Last week, I had pneumonia, and then when I finally got better, I stepped out of town for a couple days for a trip with my kids. So um, I am back. Everything should be good to go at this point, and I am very happy for that fact. Um, Okay. If we keep getting amazing wins in court, I will never have to find a reason to push Palmetto State Armory products out to you guys. Today's Blend PSA Dagger Compact 9mm comes to you with a Dr. Cut slide and non-threaded barrel in black for the incredibly affordable price of $299.99. This link to this firearm is in the show notes and shout out. To all you Minnesotans between 18 and 20 years old, a federal judge has moved to strike down the Minnesota law barring 18 to 20-year-olds from obtaining permits to carry handguns in public. The decision was released on Friday, and it comes nearly two years after three young adults teamed up with three gun rights advocacy groups to file a lawsuit against former Public Safety Commissioner John Harrington and the sheriffs of the plaintiffs' respective counties, Douglas Mill Lax and Washington, arguing that Minnesota's age restrictions violate the Second Amendment right to bear arms. In a 50-page order, a U.S. District Judge, Catherine Menendez, ruled for the plaintiffs and wrote that her decision was driven by a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court last June. New York v. Bruin. But she also expressed concerns about that standard, which requires governments limiting gun rights to show that their laws are, quote, consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. I I mean, I'd just like to get to the point where the nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation doesn't exist at all anymore. Um, The Second Amendment jurisprudence now focuses a lens entirely on the choices made in a very different time by a very different American people, Menendez wrote. She's very bitter about having to make this decision, by the way. Um, She added that the Supreme Court opinion, which struck down New York's strict limits on carrying guns outside the home, makes clear that today's policy considerations play no role in an analytical framework that begins and ends more than 200 years ago. The state attorney general's office, which is representing the public safety commissioner, filed a motion Friday asking the court to delay enforcement of the order until an appeal is decided or the state has 60 days to update its processes and technology. Menendez said the court will schedule a hearing on the matter and asked the plaintiffs for a response to the motion by the end of Wednesday. A spokesperson for the Attorney General's office did not immediately respond to a request for comment. A 2003 state law overhauling Minnesota's permit-to-carry standards barred anyone younger than 21 from obtaining a permit. 
there are exceptions to the law. Individuals don't need to carry a permit. I'm, I apologize. Don't need a permit to carry a handgun at home or at work or traveling between the two locations, nor do they need one for hunting or target shooting. In their 2021 suit, plaintiffs Kristen Worth, Austin Dye, and Axel Anderson said they wanted to obtain permits to carry handguns for self-defense, citing safety concerns during late-night work shifts and other daily tasks. All three were between the ages of 18 and 20 and still are, according to the order. The gun rights advocates joining the suit, the Minnesota Gun Owners Caucus, the Second Amendment Foundation, and the Firearms Policy Coalition, said they have thousands of members in the 18 to 20 age range who would obtain permits and carry handguns if legally allowed to do so. This is an important ruling, Brian Strasser, who is the chair of the Minnesota Gun Minnesota Gun Owners Caucus said, it makes very clear that 18, 19, and 20-year-old adults have the same Second Amendment rights as 21-year-old adults. That's consistent with how we think about other constitutional rights. Strasser said that they are reviewing the Attorney General's motion, but will likely oppose the request later this week. National and state gun safety groups filed front of the court briefs in support of Minnesota's current age limit last fall, pointing to data suggesting that those in the 18 to 20-year-old age group pose a higher risk of violent crime and suicides. If the court were permitted to consider the value of these goals and how well Minnesota's age requirements fit the ends to be achieved, the outcome here would likely be different, Menendez wrote. When they tell you how they'd remove your rights from the bench, if they could, believe them. We still have our work cut out for us to preserve our natural-born rights. If we do not fight for them, we will lose them and never lose sight of that. Okay, I have to admit, the internet is a wild place where I sometimes still get lost and confused. Distinguishing parody from reality has become a daily struggle. I say all of this to preface that I don't know if this story is real, but I do feel that it's worthy of mentioning. According to the humanitarian aid group Presidium, or Presidium, I'm not sure how to say that, network, the Taliban has detained three British men in Afghanistan. The Presidium Network is a British nonprofit that is specifically focused on providing support during humanitarian issues. And they said in a statement that the men have been allowed to speak with their families. We can confirm the men have spoken with the family. The conversation was unscripted and that they are being treated fairly, the statement reads. The family was able to speak for one minute to one and a half minutes and to speak freely, clearly what is an important and emotional call and represents tremendous progress in the situation. The men were not identified by the Presidium Network. However, one of the men was named as 53-year-old medic Kevin Cornwell by the BBC, while another was identified as uh, Miles Rutledge by Sky News, a so-called danger terrorist famous for sharing videos from such countries online. 
Quote, I go to the most dangerous places on earth for fun. Afghanistan Taliban takeover, South Sudan, Ukraine war, shooting with the Taliban, and Snake Island. The third man who has not been named was identified as the manager of a hotel for charity workers. We are working hard to secure consular contact with British nationals detained in Afghanistan, and we are supporting families, the British Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office said in a statement to Sky News. British officials continue to advance residents, I'm sorry, advise residents against traveling to Afghanistan because of possible detention. The relief Kevin's family expressed after hearing his voice for the first time in three months, not knowing if he was well, brought a sense of peace and gave them hope that the situation will be resolved soon. The Presidium Network said in its statement, Now, for transparency, I was told on Friday that Lord Miles Rutledge is in fact an internet troll, that he is currently running the Taliban public relations account, and that this entire story is false. The media does not often put forth much due diligence, so I am committing between now and tomorrow to reach out to the Presidium Network and to see if I can confirm any of this information, and I will report back tomorrow. As the world focuses on and obsesses over the Donald Trump indictment, a couple things have occurred that I believe deserves more attention. First and foremost, Saudi Arabia and other major oil producers yesterday announced surprise cuts, totaling up to 1.15 million barrels per day from May until the end of the year, a move that could raise prices worldwide. The article says could, Heather says will. Higher oil prices would help fill Russian President Vladimir Putin's coffers as his country wages war on Ukraine and forces Americans and others to pay even more at the pump amid worldwide inflation. It was also likely to further strain ties with the United States, which has called on Saudi Arabia and other allies to increase production as it tries to bring prices down and squeeze Russia's finances. The production cuts alone could push United States gasoline prices up by roughly 26 cents per gallon, in addition to the usual increase that comes when refineries change the gasoline blend during the summer driving season, said Kevin Book, managing director Of Clearview Energy Partners, the Energy Department calculates the seasonal increase at an average of 32 cents per gallon. Their calculations have been so reliable up to this point, you can probably add an additional 20 cents to that and probably be more accurate. So with an average U.S. price at roughly $3.50 per gallon of regular uh, unleaded gas, according to AAA, That could mean gasoline over $4 per gallon during the summer. Uh, Do you guys remember when Joe Biden took office? Gas was $1.99. I just want to drive that point home because as they cheer and tout, oh, we're we're just over $3 a gallon. I I just want you to remember where we used to be. However, 
Book said there are a number of complex variables in oil and gas prices. The size of each country's production cut depends on the baseline production number it's using, so the cut might not be 1.15 million. It could also take much of the year for the cuts to take effect. Oh, great. So it'll be winter whenever all of this happens. Demand could fall if the United States enters a recession caused by the banking crisis, but it also could increase during the summer as more people travel. Even though the production cut is only about 1% of the roughly 100 million barrels of oil the world uses per day, the impact on prices could be big. It's a big deal because of the way oil prices work. You're in a market that's relatively balanced, you take a small amount away, Depending on what that demand does, you could have a very significant price response. Saudi Arabia announced the biggest cut among OPEC members at 500,000 barrels per day. The cuts are in addition to a reduction that was announced last October that infuriated the Biden administration. The Saudi Energy Ministry described the move as a precautionary measure aimed at stabilizing the oil market. The cuts represent less than 5% of Saudi Arabia's average production of 11.5 million barrels per day in 2022. Iraq said it would reduce production by 211,000 barrels, the United Arab Emirates by 144,000, Kuwait by 128,000, Kazakhstan by 78,000, Algeria by 48,000, and Oman by 40,000. The announcements were carried by each country's state media. The response to this should be a shoulder shrug and an announcement of the reopening of the Keystone Pipeline and the release of oil and drilling leases with a giant middle finger for good measure. But virtue signaling is more important than energy security to this administration. Since World War II, the United States dollar has been the world's strongest currency, but one economic expert warns that it could soon lose its power. Breitbart economics editor John Carney warned that the dollar's feeble valuation could be a serious threat to the United States' crucial influence on the world stage. It's not only a serious threat, I think it's inevitable. We went through three stages, as you said, After World War II, the U.S. was the biggest economy in the world. In the 1970s, global banking became basically dollar central with the fall of the Soviet Union. The entire world, more or less, came under the domination of the U.S. dollar. That's now drifting away. China and Russia are starting to build an alternative block of currency. The economic experts' comments come in response to China's ongoing efforts to disband from the dollar. They began the strategic process of de-dollarizing their business dealings during Russia's invasion of Crimea. Nearly 3% of reserve portfolios are currently sitting in the Chinese yuan. Over the last two decades, the United States dollar has lost 12 percentage points of market share, falling from 71% to 59%, according to the International Monetary Fund. When asked how viable China's alternative is, Carney responded, I don't think in the long run that the yuan is actually a threat, that it is ever going to become the dominant currency of the world, because the Chinese communist system is not open enough. The U.S. system is very open. 
other countries can trust that our reserve currency, that we're not manipulating it. Um, Can they, though, when the Federal Reserve meets and secretly decides whether to tighten the screws on interest or flood the market with cash? Isn't that, by definition, manipulating it? Anyway, he went on to say, I don't think that China is going to become the dominant currency, and I think that Europe and I think our closest allies and Japan will remain on the dollar. And I think the Saudis and most oil countries will want to remain a close relationship with the dollar. However, I do think we're going to have alternative blocks that we haven't had for a long time. Carney farther argued that the United States choosing to actively dwindle its trade deficit with China will economically benefit the nation's economy and bolster the strength of the dollar. We're returning to a sort of Cold War basis where you have different blocks of economies and different blocks of currencies. Look, we're trying to have a smaller trade deficit with China. That's one of the explicit goals of the United States policy right now. As we try to cut down on that trade deficit, China naturally will have fewer dollars, which will mean that they need to move into a non-dollar-based system. So this will benefit us as well. It's part of our policy. Hasn't been necessarily great for the U.S. economy to have the whole world work in dollars. It could actually end up being beneficial, Carney concluded. Um, The Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General found that some of the $110 million from the American Rescue Plan went to migrants that were encountered at the southern border and was misspent by nonprofits. You can't see me right now, but this is my shocked face. In some cases, it was given to illegal immigrants who had evaded Border Patrol. The report outlines how the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, awarded $110 million in humanitarian relief funds appropriated under ARPA to provide services to families and individuals encountered by DHS in communities most impacted by the humanitarian crisis at the southwest border. As of the time of the audit, $80 million had been awarded to 25 organizations in border states, and the IG reviewed $12.9 million in spending. The office found that the money was not always used consistently with guidelines, that organizations did not provide required receipts and documentation and that some did not provide supporting documentation for those to whom it gave services. It determined that 18 groups that received $66 million in funding did not always comply with funding and application guidance. Organizations were required to maintain documents related to costs, migrants served each day, expenses incurred, proof of payment for purchases, In one sample, though, the IG said that 58% of the amount reviewed was missing documentation. Additionally, it determined that some of those migrants did not have a DHS encounter record, meaning they were quote-unquote got-away illegal migrants who had evaded Border Patrol agents instead of turning themselves in after crossing illegally. 
The IG said that of the 824 names it tested as a sample, 197, or 24% of them, were ineligible to receive humanitarian services, and 154 of them did not even have an encounter record. These issues occurred because FEMA did not provide sufficient oversight of the funds and instead relied on local boards and fiscal agents to enforce the funding and application guidance. As a result, FEMA, as the national board chair, cannot ensure the humanitarian relief funds were used as intended by the funding and application guidance. Multiple Republican lawmakers have raised concerns about the use of NGOs at the border, suggesting such groups are misspending money and encouraging or facilitating illegal immigration. Amid a historic migrant crisis that has overwhelmed authorities and saw more than 2.3 million encounters in fiscal year 2022 alone, migrants are frequently processed and then released and handed over to NGOs who will then provide care, services, and transportation. In its report, the IG warned that without additional oversight, organizations may continue to use the funds for services without providing the required supporting documentation for reimbursement, increasing the risk of misuse of funds and fraud. It made two recommendations related to increasing oversight and implementing oversight measures for future appropriations. FEMA concurred with the recommendations and said it has since issued guidance to crack down on reimbursements of unsupported costs. Um, okay, that's all good and well. Are these NGOs going to be required to pay the money back to the taxpayers that they stole it from? Where is the accountability? Oh, You mean we can't just spend stolen money however we see fit? My bad. We'll remember that next time we get a large chunk of your stolen money and keep more than 40% of the receipts for ourselves. Holy bananas, y'all. I dare you to short the IRS $10 and see what happens. Ugh. Okay, that is your Monday edition of Everything Yesterday. This morning, don't forget to check out that PSA link in the description of the show. Otherwise, I will see you guys tomorrow. You take care and have a great Monday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.